Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. If you need help with editing, music production, or anything else related to your podcast, reach out to me at greg at suburbanfolk.com to discuss how I can help you get your voice heard. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's episode, we're going to hit a bunch of core topics again because our guest does a lot of different things. This includes child development and parenting because he's a teacher. We're going to talk about health and dieting because he's an ultra marathoner. And we'll also talk about side hustles because he's developed many, many of his skills. Tyler Christensen, he's a teacher, writer, and designer and the founder of After the Run, a health and fitness blog, Tanager Media, the journal of best teaching practices, elementary teacher tips, reviews of cool stuff, D1 Recruiting, and BYU Insider, a sports blog. Thanks, Tyler, for taking some time to join the show today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am pretty good, all things considered. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. It has been crazy, but um, I have four children, and then I'm a school teacher, so I have a bunch of other kids. But with my four kids, I mean, this is the most quality time I've had with them in years. So... It's been kind of cool in that regard. Yeah, I'm trying to take the advice that I've been reading of appreciating the simple things, slowing down maybe even a little bit. So why don't you kick us off by telling us about your background? How did you get into teaching? And then you have your hand in a lot of different items as far as books, speaking. Of course, we're going to talk about running. I probably don't have a typical path for teaching, uh, just because I mostly did it backwards from the way a lot of teachers go. So when I graduated from college almost 20 years ago, um, I went straight to grad school and I was teaching on the side. But then as I was in grad school, I started teaching college. And then as I got my degrees, I became a professor. So I was a professor in teacher education, teaching educational psychology and educational technology. And I became a teacher mostly just because I really loved to learn and I loved to teach. And school was a place where I was happy and comfortable and I just thought it suited my personality well. So I did that. But after teaching um, at the college level for a decade, we made a big move across country um, for some health reasons with my daughter and to be closer to extended family. And I found that I couldn't get a job at the local university. They didn't have an opening in in my area. So I um, looked elsewhere and no one wanted to hire me to flip burgers or do anything like that. And so uh, I became an elementary school teacher. So I taught elementary school teachers for 10 years and now I am one. 
Uh, and I'm loving it. I've been doing it for three years now, and it's been a, a good change for me, even though I loved being a professor before. Um, it's uh, People always ask, "Is it, do you like one more than the other? And it's really apples to oranges. Um, it, it's a totally different experience, but I, I've been loving it. Well, we've definitely focused on some of our parenting shows, what the differences are between younger kids and older kids. So I definitely would agree that it's apples to oranges. If you focus on particular challenges, what is the most challenging aspect of teaching college students as opposed to elementary school kids? Yeah, I'd say one of the biggest differences, when I was a professor teaching future teachers, they all knew what they wanted to be when they grew up. You don't become a teacher on accident. And so it's not like one of those majors where people are still making up their mind. Um, people in teacher education, they definitely want to be teachers. And the kinds of people who want to be teachers like to talk. And so one of the challenges I had as a professor is my students wanted to talk all the time. Now, in productive ways, they wanted to have classroom discussions. But when I'd ask a question, every hand would go up. Now, in at the elementary level, you see that in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, that every hand goes up. But I teach fifth grade. And it's harder to engage my students um, to get them really excited about content. And so I have to be higher energy uh, for the elementary level, whereas teaching college, it was really easy to get engagement. Now, that's, again, because of what I was teaching um, and who, who my students were. The other big difference is in teaching college, you don't have to do any classroom management as far as telling people to be quiet or stop hitting or whatever, things like that. And a lot of time in the elementary classroom is having consequences for decisions. Yeah, I would imagine the consequences for the older kids is you're wasting your money if you fail out and don't do the work, right? Exactly. In fact, I even had a, a policy. I had a technology policy, and this is back when before um, smartphones were a big thing. But students would always be real concerned. Is it okay if I, you know, text in class or if I check my email or whatever, because I taught educational technology. So we had computers out all the time. And I said, I don't care what you do. You can play World of Warcraft as long as you do it openly so that you have the social pressure to put it away because you guys can monitor yourselves. I don't have to deal with that. If, if I had that policy in my fifth grade class now, my kids would just play video games all day. So I, it, it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would imagine. So it seems like the way you described your move and then being flexible for whatever kind of job you could get and then ultimately going from university classroom to elementary classroom, maybe it's the same mindset that you've had as far as writing books and becoming a speaker. Is that really how it's been that you've had the opportunity and you just seize the moment or how did that come about or what made you want to start writing books? That's a really good question. I think most people who become teachers, they do so because they want to make the world a better place. They want to teach someone to help them improve their lives. And that's certainly why I became a teacher. I want my students to have productive lives where they're giving to their communities and being good citizens, but, you know, really having a lot of happiness and joy in their lives. Well, when I'm not teaching, I still want people to have good lives and, and to find happiness and, and to be able to make progress and things like that. So a lot of the side hustles that I have doing web design, speaking, uh, writing books, and I'm even a, I'm a sports writer for the newspaper. 
I, all those kind of have the same end goal is what can I write or what can I say or what can I do that will help improve someone else's life? Now, my skill set is in communication. And so that's why I do it through web design or why I do it through speaking or why I do it through, uh, you know, writing. Um, but at, it, at the end of the day, it's all to the same end. What can I do that will make your life a little bit better? And, and talk a little bit about the subjects that you have tackled so far. I mean, what I've seen is side hustles, uh, more or less, and ways to make additional income. You've covered certain sports topics, and the book that you're currently working on is around physical health for today's young people, correct? How do you come about those topics that seemingly are all across the board. They're all things that I have personal experience with. So my first book, um, I had become a sports writer because I had a, an argument with one of my classes at, at the university. And I was saying, you guys need to start blogging. There's so many advantages. And one of my students turned it on me and they're like, well, what are you blogging about right now? And I wasn't. And so I was really embarrassed, but I said, okay, well, I'm really passionate about college football. So I'm going to start a college football blog. And I did. And as that blog grew, then I started getting invitations to write for other blogs and then ultimately for the newspaper. And I started getting press passes to go to games and things like that. But it was just that one was a very selfish need. It was like, oh, I'm interested in this. And so that's what I'm going to do. But with everything else that I've done, it's because I found a solution to a problem for me or for my family. And people keep asking me, well, how did you do it? What are you doing? And so I share those things. So I wrote a book about how to get free stuff online because I started doing product reviews. And everyone asked me, how did you get that free ukulele or how did you get that free drone? And honestly, it was just an easier way of dealing with all those questions was write it up, print a book, and and then I can just give the book away to people. And so I did that. And um, last year, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but as I got into more running and lost a lot of weight, people asked, well, what did you do to lose the weight? And so I wrote a book about my transformation um, to answer all those questions. And as an academic, you, you spend a lot of time in the professoriate doing a lot of research and writing up your findings and getting it published in journals and things like that. So I already had that as part of my professional life. So it just became kind of a natural thing is when I figured something out on my own, I wanted to publish something or speak about it, do a podcast or whatever, so I could share what I was learning with other people. Having the students challenge you about practicing what you preach. I've kind of said that for even a podcast um, or anywhere where you state your goal to some sort of audience, it forces you to make steps towards achieving whatever that goal is. And again, I'm sure when we talk a little bit more about your weight loss journey and marathoning, that's how I got into my latest marathon. One of the first episodes that we did was around triathlons. And I would say ironically, because I was thinking, all right, I'm getting older. There are these lifetime runners that blow up their knees and can't do much else later in life. So I need to maybe look at something else that's a little easier on my joints. So that's why I wanted to learn about triathlons. Well, after that episode aired, some friends of mine were saying, yeah, go ahead and do that. But oh, by the way, why don't you go for a personal best for your marathon? So ironically, when I'm trying to save my knees, um, I then signed up for a marathon and have been training harder than I ever have been. <laughs> but to your point, there's something to be said for having an audience available to 
just say, this is what I'm going to try and achieve. And even with like a workout partner, uh, it's easier to let yourself down, I think, than let the partner down. I think we have accountability partners in all areas of our life. If you want to be productive, you find someone that you can report to, whether that be, you know, a family member or a friend or a colleague. But if you want to do a good job in anything, you need to have some sort of mechanism for reporting on what you're doing and what progress you're making. So, yeah, when you tell people about your goals, you're kind of more on the hook to do it. In fact, there's been a lot of research that says you're more than 50% more likely to accomplish something if you publicly state your goal. An interesting stat. I'm glad that <laughs> what I'm doing uh, fits into what the what the trends seem to say. So yeah, for those out there, uh, even if it's a goal that seems lofty, you might as well put it out there and hey, at least you'll be striving for something. I think that's a, that's a good way to, to look at it. And with your newest book, uh, it, it definitely strikes me, especially for physical education. My kids are three and five, so they are just before kindergarten age. But I've definitely done a little bit of reading about the current classroom setup, potentially having some issues as far as them being able to focus and being able to have an outlet to just get out their energy so that they're able to continue to learn and they're not fidgeting or having just trouble paying attention. Is that where it first stems from? Is it a different age range that you're trying to focus on? No. So I'll have to back up. Do you want my weight loss story now? Because it leads into why I'm doing this research. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So about three years ago, I was over 300 pounds and my wife approached me and, and said, hey, we need to talk about your health. And we decided to make some changes. And again, the, here's the public accountability. I told my wife I was going to make some changes in my life. And then I told my students and my children. Uh, I think I even posted on social media, look, I'm going to go crazy. And in 2018, I'm going to lose 40 pounds, which was a hugely ambitious goal. I'd never lost more than five pounds before. Um, but then I started doing research on, you know, what works. I'd never tried like any specific diets or any training regimen or anything like that. But um, I watched YouTube videos, I listened to podcasts, and I started trying everything I could. And it took a while, I failed a bunch of times and even gained some weight. Um, but eventually things came together, and I was able to start losing weight. And, and I lost a lot more than 40, I ended up losing 103 pounds. And um, as I did so, I started reflecting on, well, why is it working now and what's next? And people started asking me for interviews and, and stuff. And so then I had to, again, start publicly saying, well, what am I going to do now that I've lost the weight? And one of those things was, well, I want to do a, an ultra. I've done a bunch of marathons before, but I, I'd never tried like a real ultra marathon and so as I was chatting with a podcast host, I was like, well, maybe I'm going to try like a 50 miler or something. So I ended up training for that and did a, a double marathon, 52.4. And while, while I was training and while I was losing all this weight, I had always thought, well, this is going to take too much time to train. I won't have time for my kids or for my students. Um, I'm going to be tired all the time. And the opposite was true. While I was losing weight, I found that I had way more energy. I was sleeping better and my productivity just skyrocketed. So all my side projects really took off. Um, I was able to publish, you know, two of my books during that year that I lost the weight. I was able to do a bunch of different things on the side. I 
finished my basement, landscaped my yard, just really the productivity took off. And so that's what got me interested in. Why is my productivity so high? Now, a lot of it makes sense. If you feel good, you're going to get more done. But I thought, you know, there's got to be a connection to being physically active and what's happening with our, our brains. And so I started doing a lot of research in that area and ended up writing and getting accepted to do a TED Talk on the impact of exercise on learning. So I prepped that TED Talk. It was supposed to be given a week ago. <laughs> and you can probably guess what happened to that TED Talk. Uh, that was scheduled to be given in San Francisco. So <laughs> that was canceled. But in the process of writing the talk, I, I coined this term brain boost. In, in education, we have something called brain breaks where we do games or physical activities to get away from instruction because we our brains need a rest. But what I found in my research was our brains don't rest. When when we do something physically active, it actually activates our brain and especially certain parts of our brain that help with long-term memory, with focus. And so when you exercise, you're actually way more likely to learn and to learn something that will stick. And so I've been testing that out in my own classroom for the last couple of years now. What happens when I do more physical activity during the day? So when we finish our math lesson, we'll dance as a class for five minutes. And what happened is after I started doing this regularly in my classroom, all my students' test scores went up and they were happier and they were more productive. So what had happened in my own personal life with exercise was now starting to work for my students. And I was sharing it with other people and they were having similar results. And so um, I took this idea of brain breaks and flipped it on its end and said, no, what we're doing is brain boosts and started promoting just short periods of exercise during the day, just doing a bunch of push-ups here or there or or doing a dance or playing a game in the classroom. And the result of that was productivity went up and learning went up like significantly. And so that's where the TED Talk came from. And as I was doing all the research anyways, I was like, well, I need to put this together and, and form a book on it. Again, people were asking me, well, where did this all come from? And so the natural extension is, Let's take this talk that I'm now giving, and I've given it to a bunch of schools and, and a few other places, um, but, you know, expanding that out and, and helping that um, to become a book so that it can apply not just to schools, but also in the workplace and, and other places, um, this idea of brain boosts. To be clear, it sounds like there are benefits for people of all ages, not just school age kids. Of course. I mean, I was the one that was the guinea pig in the first place. And I was getting the brain boost because I started training for my marathon and then for my double marathon. And my best ideas came while I was running. I didn't know it at the time. But the reason I'd get my best ideas while I was running is because one, my brain was more active. But then two, I was also listening to books on tape and podcasts and things like that. And when you listen to, you know, literature on learning and on growth, and then you also have an active brain. Well, it's no surprise that that's when my best ideas came. And that's why my productivity skyrocketed is because in my own personal life, I was being more physically active. And so, yeah, that absolutely works for anyone in any situation. If you want to have more productivity in your life, make sure that exercise is a normal part of your daily routine. I know I found very similar that if I'm out running, ideas will come to my head for problems that are going on at work. And like you said as well, now some of it is the fact that when you're doing 
some sort of endurance training like a marathon, you have more time. But I think I was averaging maybe a book every 10 days uh, when listening to an audiobook while doing workouts and so on. And, and you retain, I think, a good amount of it <laughs> rather than if it's background noise or if you're doing something else. So uh, that rings true with me as well for what I've experienced with my training. And of course, what better than to be able to multitask in that way of getting your workout in, plus you're able to feed your brain, so to speak, at the same time. I actually, it's interesting. I My students were complaining about not having enough time to read. So in January, I just started keeping track of all the books I was reading or listening to. And about halfway through the month, I was like, man, I could read like the, my expectation for my students is that they read about 50 books during the school year. And at least 10 of them need to be nonfiction. They need to read classics. I want them to be well read. And they were complaining about that. And I thought, well, how much time and effort would that actually take? So I started instead of just listen, I'm, I mostly listen to podcasts, but I started to listen to more books during January. And in January alone, I listened to 50 books. I just finished uh, Harry Potter, the Half-Blood Prince today. And that was my 75th book for the year. And it, I, I'm not spending any extra time reading. It's only while I'm driving and when I'm running. That's the only time I listen to books. But I've been able to listen to 75 just so far this year. Do you listen to them at regular speed or do you speed them up? Because I know when I listen to podcasts, I gosh, I'm to the point where I listen to it at twice the speed. And once I realize that the apps for audiobooks can do the same function. Right now for books, I'm at about 1.75. So I'm just trying to put your total books into context when you said 75. Is that at regular speed or sped up? It's mostly sped up. It depends on the book. So for example, Harry Potter, I've been listening to that whole series and the narrator is fantastic. So I sped it up, but like most things I do listen at 1.7 to maybe 2.0 for a podcast. Um, but for Harry Potter, I'm listening at 1.3 or 1.4. So Yes, I speed it up, but not dramatically in some cases. Uh, for podcasts, it's a lot easier, actually. Um, almost all podcasts I listen to at, from 1.7 to 2.0, depending on the show and, and what the host is like. And then I feel like if you catch a popular host on YouTube or something like that where you can't speed them up, it's the strangest sounding thing. <laughs> right, yeah, It sounds sort of like them, but it's not what you're used to, so... <laughs> It just gets really weird. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's talk a little bit more about running in particular. Even leading up to that point, you said you'd really not ever lost a bunch of weight successfully. That What was it that about running? So I've run all my life and I've run a bunch of marathons. Even when I was close to 300 pounds, I just ran really slow. And I would say that as far as the weight loss is concerned, running was a very small part of that. 90% diet, 10% was the exercise. Um, as far as keeping the weight off, it's been over a year now that I took the weight off and running has been much more important in maintaining my weight. In fact, so in the last year, I've actually gained 20 pounds, but my body fat percentage has dropped by 4%. So I'm definitely putting on more muscle and I'm getting rid of fat. Um, I, now I do ride, uh, a bike here at the house and I do some strength training. I have a weight set. I don't go to the gym, but I do have my home gym that I, I use at least a few times a week. So it's not just running. Um, but where I've been able to use running to actually lose weight 
is when I got more um, intentional in my training and started doing a lot more speed workouts and and tempo runs, some of the HIT training. That's where I was able to burn more calories. And so that did help with the weight loss for sure. What were some of the diet changes that made the dramatic impact? The biggest thing for me was I quit having snacks. Um, I was having snacks all throughout the day. You know, I heard the advice once that better than having two or three square meals a day is you should have five to seven really small meals. And for my body, that totally doesn't work at all. If I'm going to eat throughout the day, I'm just going to keep eating all the time. So I would have healthy snacks like carrot sticks or rice cakes or, or things that I thought were healthy, like protein bars. And I would just munch on them all day long. And those calories add up really, really quick. And so once I got rid of snacking and I had to go without sugar and processed foods for at least a few weeks to get it out of my body. And I hadn't known that before that, you know, we're, we kind of have addictions to, to sugar and it takes a while to get the sugar out of your system. So I, when I, the summertime started, I went completely off sugar and really dialed back on processed foods and it was torture for two or three weeks. But then after that, all my cravings, my normal cravings went away. And I I set the goal to not eat any sugar over the summer. And so it was really hard for a few weeks, but then it became really easy. Uh, and that's where the weight started coming off because I wasn't having any additional snacks. When I was having meals, they were healthy. Uh, and so that was a big deal. That combined with drinking a lot more water um, and then just eating overall healthier foods. I didn't uh, buy into anything like paleo or keto or anything like that, but I would say that I have a relatively high protein, low carb diet. Um, So looking for greens and and vegetables and that was a big part of it. How about around beverages? Were you into like sodas or other drinks like that that you were able to cut out or were you pretty much doing water? Um, So when I was really heavy, I had gotten rid of almost all kinds of different beverages. Um, For me, the biggest thing was juice. I actually love to drink juice, grapefruit juice or or, uh, grape juice. That was a big part of my problem because there's so much sugar in juice that when you drink it, you're just hungry all the time for other things. And I found even with like that flavored water, so it's zero calories, but it's like flavored water, that made me want to snack more. And so since I started losing weight, I've given up everything except for just normal water. I don't drink every once in a while when I go to the movies, I'll get a Sprite. <laughs> but other than that, I'm drinking water and that's it. I guess when you were figuring out the, the diet, that would have maybe been an easy win. Well, the juice probably did cut down quite a bit, but not having the soda and stuff, that wasn't the easy win that sometimes you hear other folks saying th- that they had a lot of calories there. No, I was really surprised what a difference juice made and even fruit. I gave up fruit for a while because I, kn- I know that fruit's healthy. It's got a lot of good vitamins and minerals in it. But if I ate an apple or I ate an orange, I'd want to eat the whole bag and because there's just a lot of sugar in fruit. It's natural sugar, but it's still, for my body, it would still trigger cravings. And so when I was first starting to lose weight, I completely swore off most fruit. I'd still have berries. I found that they didn't have the same uh, impact on my body. Uh, But I was learning how to pay attention to my body. And that was one of the things I had to give up for a while, which is a tragedy because I love fruit. And now it's a regular part of my diet again. But I had to give it up for a while. Yeah, I kind of wonder about that one. I've I tend to watch the sugar is the root of all evil documentaries every like three or four months or so. And then I'll forget in 
go back to maybe some bad habits and then pick it up again. And of course, the main thing they say is added sugar as compared to just natural naturally occurring sugar in fruit. And yeah, I'm, I'm admittedly not so sure if that is all I should be worried about or if I should really even cut back on fruit in general and just try to substitute it more with vegetables. Because I think like you're saying, it, it could be the same gateway that you hear with diet drinks or flavored waters. Yeah, it may not have the sugar in it, but it could potentially lead you to craving other sugary things and that cycle continuing that you're packing on the calories that way. You know, as I've had conversations with my wife, it's amazing how our bodies react differently to different things. Like she has to be really careful with dairy, but dairy doesn't have any impact on me. I don't get inflamed or anything when I have dairy. And so we're just finding the how our bodies react to certain kinds of foods and everybody's body is different. So you have to learn how to listen to your body. Going back to the, the marathon journey. So, all right. I am curious. How many marathons had you run just, I guess, as your exercise before you changed your diet and what kind of times were you running? I think I'd run either seven or eight and I'd run a 50 K as well. So I'd done one ultra marathon. Um, and I'm slow. So <laughs> I think my, my, my PR is uh, just over four hours. And that was, I think, my first marathon. So right when I was in college 20 years ago, I ran like a 409. And, and then um, my slowest one, I ran Grandma's Marathon up in Duluth, Minnesota about five years ago. And I think I weighed 280 at the time. And I ran that one in just under six hours. So I, I'm pretty slow when, when I was huge, I was really slow. Um, what I, I, I ran one last year. So as I was losing the weight, I'd lost probably 70 pounds. So I was still a pretty big guy, but I did that one in just under five. And I think if I, I'm not training for a marathon right now, but I, I would wager if I ran one today, it'd be right around four and a half hours. That's a good time. I would say for sure. And actually, Again, given everything that's going on, I researched seemingly like every marathon in the hopes that maybe one wouldn't get canceled <laughs> with everything that's going on. So I actually know of the Grandma Marathon because it's ranked as one that I think is pretty flat and tends to have uh, pretty good availability for a, a PR uh, for the people that run that one. So I randomly happen to be familiar with that. Um, and then the Ultra Marathon I definitely don't have any background in what the difference in training is when you up the mileage like that. What is the training like for that as compared to just just a single marathon? Um, well, it's a it's a dramatically different experience. When you train for a marathon, I, I would say once you've run one marathon, running your seconds relatively easy because it's mostly mental. And so, yes, you have to put in a base amount of miles and if you want to be competitive, you have to be strategic with your training as far as doing speed and, and intervals and stuff like that. But if you're just doing a marathon for the sake of completing a marathon, it's more about just being in athletic shape where you're used to running a lot of miles. And so getting a few like your weekend long runs in, that's what's most important uh, for a normal marathon. Now for ultra marathons, most ultra marathons, um, have different kinds of physical challenges. So you're going to be off road a lot. You're going to be going through um, not groomed paths. In some, like the first ultra I did that was a 50K. So it's only a few miles more than a normal marathon, 
but they had brought in water trucks to make mud. And this was before like your Spartan races or your warrior races. That was just the ultra world. It has been for 20, 30 years is let's make it difficult. So they don't clear the trees that fall down across the path. And you have to run up and down mountains and through rivers and have like four or five different pairs of shoes waiting for you at different stations. And so in that kind of a race, your training is going to be different because um, it takes a different uh, toll on your body. And so you do have to be practicing on trails, doing some trail running, um, doing a lot more hill workouts and stuff like that. Now, the the 50 miler, the, the double marathon that I did this last year, it was actually on a relatively flat paved course. So for training for that, I didn't have to do your normal ultra training. I just had to make sure that my body could handle 50 miles, you know, straight. And so for that one, I just put in, it was in a September of this last year. And over the summer, as a school teacher, my summer schedule is really flexible. So I just up my mileage dramatically. Like I think in July, I ran over 200 miles. Um, and the other months, I was right around 150 to 175. So I was running, you know, seven, eight, nine miles every single day. And then on on weekends, there would be days where I would do like a a 10 miler in the morning and a 20 miler in the evening. So it was a lot just of putting miles in. It wasn't a lot of strategic training because I didn't care what my time was. And most people who do ultras don't care about their time. It's just about doing the distance. So, and you get the distance by having that base physical, um, you know, your muscles in place and stuff like that. So it's just putting in the time. Does it have any sense of the tempo runs or speed training at all that a marathon does, or is it really just get those miles in each day at whatever your consistent, comfortable pace is that you can complete the mileage? Yeah. So the, the race I did was a little unusual because it was a loop. It was a six mile loop and it, it's called last one standing. And the way it works is everybody starts the race and you just run a loop and you have to do it in a certain amount of time or you get eliminated. And it was a generous time. It's like 15 minute miles. So if as long as you can complete six miles within the hour and a half, you get to keep running the race. And so people were just trying to pace themselves, not try to burn themselves out. So even the people who ended up winning the race, they started out super slow because it was just about conserving energy. In fact, the first lap that I did, my son, who hates running, he trained with me a little bit so he could run that first lap with me. He wanted to show support. And so he ran that first mile and we had one other guy that joined us and he was just chatting us up that whole loop and giving us tips on how to last throughout the night. It was going to be all night running and he was giving me all these tips and I thought, what a nice guy. And he was the guy that won the race. So <laughs> I saw him again the next day and he, he ended up running 102 miles. Um, so in 24 hours, he, he ran over a hundred miles. Um, but he was just chatting me up that whole first six miles, um, because we weren't concerned about training. Now that's not how other ultras are, are work out. So it, it really just depends on the race and what your goals are for the race. What's the community like, I guess in my head, I think of every increased distance that you're going for, the less people are willing to do it. So maybe the less people you're able to find to train with you or be motivations like you mentioned that guy was. Um, how did you come up with any community or did you? Was it just sort of a, a solo effort? It, for me, it was solo. But w what you'll see, and I'm sure you saw this as you did your marathon, that 
um, as you get to the marathon distance, because it takes a lot of commitment to train for a marathon and it's a major accomplishment to do one, people who train and run marathons are generally really friendly. So during the race, you're going to sit and talk to someone for a few miles or you're going to find people to run with, even if you didn't bring your own training buddies or whatever. Um, when I did my ultra this last time, I, I met a guy that had flown in from DC and turns out we had a, a, a common friend from Indiana and we ended up talking for like seven hours. We ran a bunch of loops together and um, ran about half the race together. And that's just what happens in the distance running community is you just find people, everyone's pretty nice and supportive of each other. Uh, you know, if something goes wrong, people are going to step up to help you out with it. So even though it was, I didn't have any training team with me and in my training, I didn't run with anyone else. I actually really love to run by myself. It, it's still a super supportive community and, and group. I'm sure the question that people are also thinking is what happens afterwards? <laughs> how, uh, how sore are you after that race and what's the recovery look like? You know, so when I ran my first marathon, um, it was a pretty hilly marathon and even immediately after, like I couldn't go up and down steps. Um, it just hurt so much to, to step up or down. Um, and then for a few days, it felt like that. And then it took me two or three weeks to recover. Um, I would say for the ultra marathon that the afterwards, um, for this 50 miler was actually a lot easier, uh, more tame than, than my first marathon, just because I had been training more, more effectively. So, um, you know, I had put in the time and I put in the miles. And so when I ran the 50 miles, was I sore? Absolutely. You know, the next day I was, you know, my legs were stiff and I had a waddle around, but I still moved around. I took about a week off from running. Um, I had a lot of big blood blisters on my feet. I had one that was, you know, the whole pad of my foot was a big blood blister. So it was, you know, the size of my hand. Um, so I needed to stay off that for a while and, and eventually let that drain out. But aside from that, the recovery wasn't too bad at all. Let's double back quickly to the diet part as well. When you're training for these long distance races, obviously you're burning a lot of calories. And then again, there may be some ramp down period or just completely resting and taking a break. Do you consciously change the way that you're eating during that period or how do you manage that? Or just, it works out because you get into the next race pretty quickly. Yeah. So that's interesting because before, uh, when I was, you know, in, in running, we call it a Clydesdale, a really big runner. And actually I think I technically still qualify cause I'm over 200 pounds, but when I was 280 pounds running, um, I, when I would train, I would be so hungry. And so I increased the amount of food I ate and especially certain kinds of protein. So I'd want hamburgers all the time. I just felt was I was deficient in iron and sodium. So I wanted really salty, meaty things. Um, and that's what my body wanted. Now, I made the mistake in training for several races to overcompensate because I'd be hungry from running that I'd eat whatever I thought my body wanted and needed and I would eat too much. And so like when I did grandma's marathon, I actually gained 20 pounds training to run grandma's because I was overcompensating um, in in my eating. For, for my last couple of races this last year, 
I, I just kept my same diet. In fact, for most of my Saturday runs, I, I'll do 20 miles in a fasting state. So I'll, I'll do intermittent fasting. And so I won't have even eaten anything uh, for 12, 16, 18 hours and I'll run 20 miles. And I never thought before that that would even be possible. You need fuel, you know, and you would run out of energy. But for me, that was a total myth that was broken. Uh, I had plenty of energy to run. And maybe it's because I'm still, you know, nursing all this extra weight. I've got a little flab on me. And so I have those fat stores. I don't know what it is, but um, my diet doesn't change hardly at all now when I train for running. Um, I just eat a normal diet. I there, I still eat pizza. I still have hamburgers. Um but, you know, it's mostly water and, and high vegetable diet. I'm definitely with you on the high vegetable diet, at least trying to do it. But uh, I try to sneak them in when I can because I do not do a good job of getting them in on a regular basis. But the reason I ask the question is I am very much the opposite that I'm eating a lot of extra calories during training. And then afterwards, I still feel hungry. <laughs> and I usually take some amount of time off, certainly that I'm not doing the same amount of uh, exercise that I am leading up to a training. And I tend to put on some extra weight. Actually, the heaviest I've ever been was the combination of a first marathon, continuing to eat that way for two to three months, <laughs> ending up with a cruise, <laughs> which we all know what happens when you go on a cruise ship, you do nothing but eat the entire time you're there. And uh, it, it showed by the time I was done with that, that I, I had to change my eating habits for sure. Well, let's go a little bit to the TED Talk. Like you said, unfortunately, sounds like you're postponed. But what is that process like? I mean, I think it's something that people are very familiar with what TED Talks are. But I know, at least for myself, I'm not aware of what the process is to apply and be chosen. And then ultimately, how the venue is picked and from A to Z? It really depends on the venue. So uh, I wanted to do a TED Talk mostly because I wanted to share my message of my weight loss, but also what I was learning about the impact of exercise on, on learning. I wanted to share that with a bigger audience. And I was doing podcast episodes and I was doing high school assemblies and stuff like that, but I was looking for a bigger stage. And so I started um, looking more into public speaking and how to get those bigger stages. And the kind of the consensus was if you really want to grow as a personal speaker or as a professional speaker, there's two ways to do that. You get a TED stage or you write a book. Well, I'd already written books, but not about my topic that I was doing. So I was like, okay, I need to write this book about Brain Boost. And then I started looking at the TED process. And what, what it is, is it depends on the venue. So there are TED events at colleges. There are TED events for cities or communities. There are some at high schools or elementary schools. And then there's the main TED stage where you have to get asked to do that one. Now, for the, your normal TEDx events, most of them have some sort of application process. Now, some of them are closed. So if it's like whatever university, they might only pick uh, speakers from that university. Or if it's a high school or a youth group, they might only have speakers from that group. So what I started doing was I just made a list of all the TED events that were within a reasonable distance of me that would happen at a time where I could actually give the talk. So I, I was targeting my spring break. And there were here in the Western United States, there were like 20 or 30 different events during my spring break uh, this year. And so I went to each of those TED pages, found the organizer, and then either connected on LinkedIn or stalked them and, and found their social media or their email address. 
and just wrote to all the organizers and said, hey, I have a message. I'm interested in sharing it. Do you accept applications? And do you have a theme for your event? Um, Because I want to know if it'd be a good fit. So I did that. I, I reached out to probably 30 or 40 people. And of the 30 or 40, maybe half I was able to actually connect with. And of those half of that 20, maybe 10 said, well, yes, we have an application process or no, we don't, but we'll keep you on file for future. And so from those, I started, I had a relationship now with a few of them. And once I realized, okay, yeah, this is an event where the theme lines up with what I have, then I would really try to double down and and make contact with that organizer. I had three different events that that came back to me and said, yeah, we think you're going to be a really good fit. Go through this application process and you submit kind of your description, your title, and they want it pretty succinct and maybe like a short clip of you speaking so they know you're not going to embarrass them on their stage. And so I did that and two of them wanted me to to speak for them. And then for one of them, the last second, they said, actually, we're, we're going to go in a different direction. And so I didn't get that one. But the one I got was a it was at a high school uh, just outside of San Francisco. And the organizer was actually a high school student. And then he had like a faculty mentor. So I reached out to both of them. And he was so excited. He's like, this is a perfect match for the theme that we have. And I guess what had happened in the past is they didn't have any outside speakers. It was just high school students. But for this particular event, they had a medical doctor that was going to speak. And then I was going to be the last speaker. So we'd kind of bookend all the students. And I think they were trying to kind of elevate the the event and, and make it a little more professional. And that's why they were pulling us in. And so, and I was willing to travel out on my own dime uh, to do it. And so they were just really excited. But most of my communication with him was happening through LinkedIn. And so that's how I found him originally. And then we communicated. I did have to submit an application, but it was kind of just part of the process. They're like, we really want you, but you need to do apply just like everyone else. And so I submitted an application and then they said, yeah, you're in. And then it just didn't happen. So so I'm back to looking for other TED events. So no reschedule from them at this point? Probably not. Because it's a high school, most of the kids who are going to speak are graduating. So, so they're not going to reschedule. They might invite me back next year just to speak with a new group. But I don't want to wait a year to get my message out. And so I, I'm not being real proactive about it right now because everyone's still in crisis mode. But when and if things calm down, I'll probably reach out to some other TED events, hopefully for late in the summer and see if I can get on a TED stage. I think what you're saying is really important for anybody that maybe is stuck as far as networking is concerned. I mean, shout out to LinkedIn. I'm kind of surprised sometimes when I'll hear colleagues tell me they don't have an updated profile or aren't on the site at all, because it seems to me to be a very obvious start for anybody in their professional journey or someone like yourself that has a couple of side hustles going on that you're trying to cultivate and grow. I know I've had uh, success in in just having an updated profile there and in, in networking with folks. So I would encourage any and everybody to do that. And yes, I think you're spot on. Don't wait for that one <laughs> to come back uh, just because it got canceled. You got to keep hustling to get to the to the next opportunity. Well, and let me echo what you're saying about LinkedIn. A year ago, I had like 200 connections on LinkedIn. And I wasn't using it for anything. I had a profile, but it wasn't 
real current or anything. And as I started sharing my story with other people, I was like, I really need to dig into LinkedIn. And I really wanted to speak more. And so I was connecting with any speaker I could find and especially TEDx speakers. And so I was looking and searching for TEDx all the time and, and trying to connect with everyone I could. And when they connected, I'd ask them questions. And that really, for me, was amazing. That was my education in becoming more of a professional speaker because I started following all these, you know, top speakers and ended up forming relationships with many of them. Now I have friends that um, are big time speakers all around the world. And I met most of them on LinkedIn. And so I would use LinkedIn to read their their posts and their articles and stuff. And so I was learning and growing that way. But then I started making a lot of connections. And I think just today, I, I passed 6,000 connections on LinkedIn. And probably 5,000 of those 6,000 connections are professional speakers. And so it's really helped me to dig into that area of my life. Now, if I was pursuing some other path or other dream right now and was connecting with other kinds of groups, I don't know how I do that because right now all my connections in LinkedIn are all speakers. So I might have to create another account or something. I don't know. But I've loved LinkedIn. It's really opened a lot of doors for me. I'll I'll certainly have to look you up and connect to you once we're done with our interview because again it's just important to to keep your network open and hey if you or anybody else gets to the point where they're looking for a different career path when you run into people that have a bunch of different backgrounds that's a good way to pick their brain and see what they've done and hey their page generally speaking is going to be their resume so you can even see where they've been and some of the ways they've built on their career to get to where they're at. So yeah, it's definitely a great resource. Um, Well, Tyler, before I let you go, let's do a quick hit on the design piece because I don't think we hit where that's fit in to all the different things that you do. How did you get into that and what kind of work do you do there? Way back in the day, um, in the early 2000s, I was in college and I got interested in website just because that was like the tech bubble, right? And so everyone was learning how to code and So I taught myself just how to do basic coding, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, stuff like that. Now you don't need any of those skills. If you want to build a website, you can go to, you know, one of those build a site places, your Wix or Weebly or Google sites, and you don't need to know any coding. But back in the day, if you wanted to have a website, you had to code it yourself. And so I did that a real long time ago and started just building a website for me and for my family and As we moved around the country, I've lived all over the country and I wanted to communicate with my very large family. And so I built a website for me and my wife and it was kind of a blog before blogs existed. And we would just post updates on our family and stuff like that. Well, as as I did that, um, people started asking me to build them a site. You know, this is really cool. Would you build me a site? So I started doing it for family and friends. And then small businesses started reaching out to me. And as I became a teacher, you know, that's kind of how I spent my summers was working on web design, trying to make a few extra bucks uh, doing that. But about seven or eight years ago, I realized that I just wasn't getting enough out of it to make it worth it. My my clients didn't pay me enough. You know, when it's family and friends, they get the family and friend discount, which usually means you're doing it for free. And so I had this master idea. I probably got it while I was running (laughs) that... If I reached out to celebrities and asked some celebrities if I could do a free website for them, then I could really build my portfolio and be legit because I, you know, I represent so and so or whatever. And so this was back in the early days of social media. And I made a list of like my 20 or 30 favorite actors. And I, I found them either on Facebook or I think this was pre Twitter. So it was in, 
either in Facebook or I found their email. And I just sent him a message and said, hey, I'm a teacher. I'm interested in doing website design on the side during my summers. Um, would you like a free website? So I did that. And then I forgot all about it. And months passed. And then I got a message back in Facebook from it was in that hidden folder in Facebook, where if you send a message to someone you're not connected to, it goes in this special folder. And he had found it and then had sent me back. And then I eventually found his response. But um, it was one of my favorite actors on a, a TV show called Psych that's about the psychic detective. And and the guy that had written me back, his name is Sage Brocklebank. And he wasn't a major character on the show. If you're familiar with the show, his, his name is Buzz McNabb. And he was kind of like the comic relief at the police station. He was one of the the junior detective. So not a, not a major celebrity as far as name recognition, but he was certainly familiar to me because it was one of my favorite TV shows. And he said, hey, yeah, my mom's a teacher and I've always wanted a website. You know, how do we do this? And so I, I formed a relationship with him. I built him a site and then he started referring me to his friends. So I built uh, some other celebrities' websites and grew my portfolio so that I had this legit design business. Uh, and then I started reaching out to s- local businesses, but my rates went way up. And so so it did exactly what I wanted it to do. And then I realized I hated doing design. I, lo- I loved the design. I hated the billing. I hated prospecting and finding new clients. And so today I'm not taking on any new clients. I still have a few actors that I have. I'm maintaining their sides. I have uh, a professional basketball player that I work with. But we now mostly just do branding and other things that aren't web related. So that's where I'm at now with web design is it started out as a hobby. It grew into something legit when I scaled it up. And and now it's back to a hobby again. If nothing else, again, I think for anybody that's looking to do a side hustle or take any skill that they have and maybe eventually monetize it in some way, that's all a really good roadmap for just get yourself out there. As they say, the worst that can happen is they say no or they just ignore the email and you know, no harm, no foul. But um, don't put excuses ahead of just doing the outreach. So I think that's really cool. It's all about supply and demand. You know, the more that you're able to put in your portfolio, then that can help dictate the the pricing. And I'm right there with you. I am not a marketing person either. So that that takes a little bit of the fun out of uh, whatever type of work you're you're trying to do, but that's really cool. Well, and I think another important thing to note here is a lesson throughout all the things we've talked about today is that in almost every case, I failed a bunch of times before it actually worked. And I think your listeners can probably appreciate that, that if you're trying something new and especially something really hard, most people quit after they fail once or twice. But if you're consistent and keep working at it, eventually you're going to strike gold. And so it's just you know, putting in that time and being willing to fail a bunch of times and eventually it works out okay. Well, I think that is great advice for us to conclude on. Before we sign off, uh, Tyler, do you want to go ahead and give your contact info where people can find you on social media and then any upcoming events that you may have, like speaking events? Um, Yeah, well, speaking events have all been canceled. So I actually, I will be doing like a virtual summit, but I don't even know any of the details for that. So my hub is tylerchristensen.com. And that's Christensen is E-N-S-E-N. And that's where I link to all the different stuff I'm doing. So even with social media, I have so many different social profiles just because I do a lot of different things that are unrelated or seem unrelated to other people. And so... 
you know, that's the best place for me. Now I do, as far as running and weight loss, um, I do have a podcast and a blog and some social handles for that. They're all after the run. Um, and that's just because when I finish my long runs on the weekend, I'll record a podcast episode while I'm breathing heavy. So it's a real super unprofessional podcast, but that's a, a fun time for me to get my ideas out. So I do have that. And, and so that's a good place for social media and stuff if you just look for after the run. Well, Tyler, I appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today and we will be in touch. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Greg. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to suburbanfolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to ringmedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G media.com.